<laughs> After 20 years, we just like doing things together. <laughs> Sorry about that, Matt. It's always been, over the 20 years, it's been fun embarrassing Matt every now and then. It's just, it's just good fun. One of the things I'm really going to miss not having him in the staff uh, meetings especially. Um, expectations uh, can have interesting results. <laughs> Mum said she'd call at 7.30 and sure enough, right on the dot, ring, ring. Uh, I answered and with a bit too much enthusiasm said, G'day Mum, found a new way of getting rid of telemarketers. <laughs> Expectations sometimes lead to pain. Like the time I reached into our letterbox because we didn't have the keys, you couldn't open, open the flap, reached in there and uh, when my hand was fully inside, uh, a huntsman dropped onto the back of my hand. Well, I ripped it out so quickly, my, my wedding ring got caught on the flap and uh, nearly I thought I'd pulled my finger off. Expectations in relationships. Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, sometimes when our reality is different to what we expected, it can be wonderful. Or it can be absolutely devastating, can't it? Depends on what we expected. Perhaps the most obvious example of expectations is childbirth. Hence the term, expecting. Uh, you know it's going to come. You just don't know exactly when. Just ask Gemma or Amanda uh, for a recent account. Uh, I was there when each of my four daughters was born. And what a fabulously emotional moment. What a fabulous moment when that expectation (gasps) reaches fulfilment. Or to the Israelites, after King David, this psalm, what we've just heard read to us by Frank, this psalm gave them that kind of excited anticipation, not about a baby, but about a great king who would one day come and rule Israel and defeat her enemies. They knew that what God had promised would certainly come to pass. And Psalm 110 brought great excitement in the early church as well. In fact, when the writers of the New Testament were looking for Messiah passages, this psalm was like the best chip at a party of seagulls. It's quoted so many times. And it's all about Jesus. Now be honest. When you just heard that psalm read out to us, did it just give you a shiver of excitement? Did you feel yourself moved with great expectation and hope? Maybe not. In fact, at face value, some of it's pretty confusing, right? Like, what is it about? So, so let's walk through it together and uh, try and understand it so we too can marvel at the treasures that it holds for us. And let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Loving Father God, please help us to see how this psalm points us to Jesus so we can have some of that genuine expectation that brings confidence in our present reality and joy-filled hope as we look to our future and towards eternity. Amen. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Quoted about six times in the New Testament. What does it mean? Well, the first thing we need to do is to work out who's talking, who are they talking to, and who are they talking about. Well, note the capitals for Lord in verse 1 there. That's repeated again in verse 4. 
That's the publisher's way of indicating Yahweh, the almighty God of Israel. Whereas the second Lord, capital L, lowercase, uh, is the word Hebrew word Adonai, referring to a, a ruler or a king. God is saying some pretty amazing things here, isn't he? But who is he talking to? What king is he talking to? Uh, and as we go through it, you could kind of make a lot of it fit pretty well with someone like King David. But look at the heading at the very top. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. This is not about David. This is by David. So who's this Lord he's talking about? I mean, apart from God, who does King David look up to? Who is greater than King David? Who could possibly be his master and ruler apart from God? With all the talk about scepter and rule and crushing kings and judging nations, it must be a very, very great king. And he reigns in Zion, so it has to be a king of Israel. But who? Because if we jump down to verse 4, we get a big clue with that word forever. So this is some kind of eternal king. Well, the reason the New Testament writers were so excited about this psalm is because they recognize Jesus is this king. Jesus is this king. And he reigns from Zion. Having defeated death, he lives forever. Where? Seated at the right hand of God. Right there in that very first verse. Well, I was at the National Art Gallery in Canberra a few years ago, and I saw a sculpture that was suspended from the ceiling, about eye level, and viewing it from different angles, you saw kind of different textures and patterns and lighting, different uh, images, if you like, in, in what we're looking at. A bit like that um, new sign up on the council building, the new council building. You approach from one way, it says library. You drive the road down the other way, and it says museum. Yeah, I'm not the only one that's seen that. Um, Called just sing our observing you all are. Um, and so as we look at this psalm, it develops for us not two but three portraits of the Messiah to help us grasp the awesome character of Jesus. Verses 1 to 3 speak about him as king. Verse 4 speaks about him as priest. And verses 5 to 7 speak about him as warrior. And if you're a note taker, uh, there's your headings. Jesus is king, priest and warrior. Firstly, verses 1 to 3, Jesus as king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You'll rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you'll receive the dew of your youth. Well, let's have a crack at that, shall we? Listen to how Paul, the Apostle Paul, expands verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 1. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, and placed all things under his feet. Are we in any doubt who Psalm 110 is talking about? That's clear as clear, isn't it? 
Incredible. God thinks pretty highly of his son, doesn't he? One thing is clear, you don't want to be his enemy. Because you'll be one of those ones under his feet. When I was growing up, our neighbours had uh, hunting dogs. They were the meanest looking creatures. And um, they could pull down a wild boar, and they did. He went hunting regularly. Um, So when they had puppies... I wasn't going anywhere near the puppies. I had great respect for those parents. That's just a dog. We're talking here about the God who created dogs and dinosaurs and every other thing in creation. And we're talking about his son. What what kind of respect and awe should we show to God and his son? The psalm continues in verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. And verse 5 to 7, we'll look at it in a moment, show just exactly what happens to those enemies in the end. But we need to be careful here how we see Christ in the psalms. Spare a thought for the Jews at the time of Jesus. One of the reasons so many of them didn't accept Jesus is because when he came to Zion... He didn't crush the Romans. Worse, he actually reached out to them in loving kindness. Fancy the Jewish Messiah healing a Roman centurion's servant. And verse 3 is a bit of a puzzle too. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Well, what happened to Jesus? Didn't his troops, you know, his closest followers, didn't they desert him? run for their lives and pretend they didn't even know him when he faced his day of battle at the cross? A dead man on a criminal's cross. That's hardly a mighty scepter, is it? So what's going on here? Clearly, if if this really is about Jesus, then there's something more, something deeper, something far grander than a purely physical battle going on here now before jumping into the new testament to clear the fog let's press on with what david wrote the rest of verse three it's quite strange isn't it arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth face value it doesn't make a lot of sense we need to read it carefully to understand the great truths it expresses and I should have put that on more of my cover sheets at university essays, you know. Uh, At face value, it doesn't make much sense. But press on, there are great truths revealed here. (laughs) Why didn't I see that opportunity? Uh, From the womb of the dawn, you'll receive the dew of your youth. In other words, right from the start of the day, you'll have the strength and vitality, that youthful vigour. It's a picture of enduring energy, that holy majestic power, if we put the whole verse together. The words, you will receive, highlight that this is not mere human effort. This is nothing short of the limitless power and strength given by God himself. So if we put verses 2 and 3 together, the gist of it is this. When it comes to push and shove, when the fight is on, when the battle gets going, there's really no contest at all. God's king, 
wins. It's kind of like you know, Socceroos versus Barrick Heights under six boys. C division. And guess how long that victory lasts? Jump into verse 4. Forever. Friends, what does that mean for us? If Jesus is the king, chosen to rule forever, where does that place us? If you recognize that you're actually not the best king for your life, that you you recognize that you need a king for life, someone to to guide and and lead you and uh, someone to follow through life. Jesus is that king. Jesus is, in fact, the king that we all need. For without him as king places us as his enemies. As we press on into verse 4, this is Jesus as priest. Jesus as priest. The original Hebrew language has lots of uh, words in its its vast vocabulary um, to show different degrees of meaning. Just like we have in English. Remember these guys? Remember these guys? Uh, Gee, I had fun preparing this sermon. I had to kind of scan through some of their repertoire. Uh, It was great. Perhaps... Maybe. I'll think about it. Sounds good. Okay, I'm in. Yes, for sure. Definitely. Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it for anything. I promise. I mean, there's lots of shades of meaning, isn't there? I like the one where he goes, it was terrible. It was awful. And he ends up cheering, saying how great it was. Um, Look at verse 4. How does it start? The Lord has sworn. That's extremely strong language, about as strong as you can get. God's making an oath, a binding promise, and it's capped off with a guarantee. He will not change his mind. And what's all this about? You're a priest forever. You're a priest forever. And then he adds, in the order of Melchizedek. Who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, fortunately, and thank you, Helen, for reading uh, that section from Genesis chapter 14. Um, And and as Helen said, uh, Abraham's just come back from battle against the odds, miraculously defeating five allied kings. And he's really just a nomadic shepherd, but obviously with God on his side. Um, And uh, we heard that uh, this Melchizedek, who's king of Salem. Melchizedek, by the way, it means king of righteousness. Salem uh, means peace. So this guy was known as, as king of both righteousness and peace. What's more, he was described as priest of God most high. Now, the interesting thing here is that he was called priest of God most high 500 years before the priesthood began under Moses. Fascinating, isn't it? And he's a priest, not just way back then, but a priest, how long? Forever. So in Psalm 110, God is saying that Jesus is not only king of righteousness and king of peace, but he's also a priest before, above and beyond 
the Levitical priesthood of the Jews. And what's so important about a priest? Well, in the Old Testament, the priests approached God to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, if you want to really get an overdose of Melchizedek, read all of Hebrews chapter 7 later on. Let me just give you a little bit of it. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer explains that Jesus offered, not a lamb or a calf or a bull or something, Jesus offered himself once for all people when he gave his life on the cross. And because he rose again from death, he now lives forever and has a permanent priesthood. He's always a priest. Hebrews 7.25, I've got to read one of them. Um, Hebrews 7.25 puts it like this. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What a wonderful promise, friends. What a wonderful promise. So, so again, I want to ask, what does that mean for us? I want to say it like this. If you recognize that you can't get to God based on your own merit, if you aren't 100% God that just between you and God, you can kind of sort all the differences out and come to a, a happy ending, you think you might need some help there. Jesus is the one we need. He is the priest forever who goes to God on our behalf and because of his death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection to new life, he lives forever to plead our case with God the Father, which means we can have a relationship with God, a perfect, unhindered relationship with God the Father because our sin is paid for and dealt with. And we can receive God's forgiveness. Jesus is the priest we all need. He's the promised king. He's the everlasting priest. And the last three verses portray Jesus as a warrior executing divine judgment. Look at it with me. The Lord, that's Jesus, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's not exactly sweet Jesus, meek and mild, is it? Can I ask you, what's your mental picture of Jesus? You know, when the thought of Jesus comes randomly into your head, like, what's your mental picture? What, What do you think about him? What comes most easily Because I think we often view Jesus from a very self-centered kind of perspective. We embrace him as saviour. Hey, thanks for giving me life. Thanks for giving me heaven and all that. And um, that's about all we think about. But we so often neglect him as Lord and ruler. He is Lord. He is the mighty king. He's the priest and he's the warrior spoken of in this psalm that will ultimately crush everything that is against God. It's exactly what John the Baptist said of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was coming down towards the Jordan River and and John spoke about him with these words. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn. And if you're trusting is in Jesus, that's us. That's the good news. It's wonderful hope right there. But burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Four years of my childhood, I lived on a farm and I've seen chaff on fire. It rips through the chaff. Let me say, it really burns well, really well. And you don't want that. Jesus will judge. He will crush his enemies. He will rule over nations. He rules over me and he rules over you. But to those who turn to him as their ruler before that final day, he will rule over them as saviour. But to those who consistently reject him on that final day, he will rule over them by judging them, crushing them. To use the language of Psalm 110, heaping up the dead. It's a devastating picture. The psalm ends with a picture that I reckon Monet could have painted. He would drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's nice, isn't it? Sounds like a pleasant sea. Hot day, cool water, satisfy the thirst. But in this context, it is shocking. The psalmist is saying that this divine warrior who is executing God's judgment will stay refreshed until his mission is finished. Pursuing his enemies until they are destroyed. None will survive. None will escape. Not one. He'll be refreshed to the end. Friends, if you recognize this morning that you are not on Jesus' side, we're being reminded this morning that you're actually his enemy. But you don't have to stay that way. He loves you. He gave his life for you on the cross. And he calls us all this morning to bend our knee to his lordship, to welcome him into our hearts, not just as saviour who forgives our sins, but as Lord who rightfully owns and rules and directs our life. And to those who do submit, we have the wonderful hope of being with him forever. From the time it was written, the Jews found in this psalm a glorious hope that one day God would send the Messiah to rescue them and defeat their enemies once and for all. But God had planned a much greater Messiah, king, priest and warrior, one who would introduce a completely new, heavenly, eternal kingdom. One who would bring them to God, not just in this life, but forever. And one who would defeat enemies far worse than the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Romans. So how do we reconcile this mighty victorious king with the real Jesus who was rejected and despised and killed in Zion 
by the Jews? Well, the answer comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 26, Jesus claimed the words of this psalm as his own, pointing to him. But he combined it with Daniel chapter 7 on the screen. You will see the Son of Man, that's code language for Jesus. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Future tense, coming. He is coming, not in weakness, but in glory and power. So we too can be rightfully caught up in the hope and expectation of Psalm 110 because we too await the coming of Christ, the second coming. So how certain are you that he will come? How's your expectation? Because in the light of this psalm, we cannot leave here this morning thinking that Jesus King Jesus would definitely come today. I mean, if you do that, you're not going to bother finishing that school assessment that you got for year 12. Or uh, you won't prepare for that work meeting on Wednesday. But we cannot leave here thinking that King Jesus definitely won't return today either. Otherwise, we're tempted to become complacent, aren't we? Lukewarm, our head might grow full of knowledge and our heart will be filled with coldness. Rather, we must leave here this morning knowing that our king will definitely return. And if you allow me just briefly go back to my own kids, one of the things you have to do when you know your, your wife is out here, you just about balance a plate on top of a tummy, um, one of the things you've got to do is pack the bag, have it ready at the door because you don't know when labour will kick in and it might be slow or it might be really quick. Just ask Mark. I think he's delivered a few babies in the ambulance. Um, and, and Jesus said, Jesus used that kind of image, said, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Well, friends, may we be found ready and waiting for Jesus, our eternal king, our ever-living priest, and our divine warrior who saves his people and defeats all who oppose him and them forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just remind at the start of the service as Matt put those pictures up and, and asked us, how do we picture ourselves this year? And in contrast, we've seen three portraits of Jesus as king, priest and warrior. Father, I pray that as we consider our own lives in the light of who Jesus is, we may recognise every single one of us our desperate need for him. To submit to him and revel in his kingship over our lives. How wonderful that is. To turn to him as our priest who brings us safely, eternally into the presence of God because he gave his own life for us. And to find joy and comfort that ultimately he will destroy 
every enemy we have, the sin that resides in our hearts and everything that works against us fully enjoying the life that you've given us, the life that you want us to enjoy with you forever. Thank you for this psalm and for the way it so wonderfully, powerfully, prophetically shows us who Jesus is. Amen.